Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello again and welcome back once more to episode 23 of Signals to Danger. As I do every episode, I'm going to open up by thanking you for your downloads, your shares, your likes and your interaction on social media. And if you want to come along and join those conversations, you'll find the podcast at at Signals to Danger and me at, at Daniel Fox Rail. And the podcast is also on Facebook and Instagram as well as Twitter. As ever, I'm also going to remind you about our website, signalstodanger.com. And on there you can find show notes, transcripts, the shop and even more. And while you're also on there, there is a page on how you can support the podcast if you want to. There's a link there for Patreon. And I would love to take this opportunity to thank VK4501. I don't think that's your real name, but I'll let you off for signing up to Patreon. It is pretty much the warmest day of the year so far so if you'll forgive me for recording with the windows open left right and center you might actually hear some of the uh the wonderful sounds of yorkshire birds and barking neighbors dogs in the background for this episode but i'm sure you can uh let me off for that one because the alternative is me sweating on the microphone with that delightful intro out of the way I suppose we should probably get started with this week's episode. For some people, waiting at a level crossing is a part of everyday life. The alarm sounds, the lights flash and the barriers come down. And then you wait. But when the barriers lift up again and the lights are out, well, then it's time to drive off again. But what if pulling forward was the most dangerous decision you would ever make. The year is 2010, and the place, Morton on Lug. Carriages are crushed one on top of another. This is Signals to Danger, a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK, explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out, and how each of these accidents shaped the industry going forwards. My name is Dan, I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life, but today I'm going to be the one taking you through this podcast. We start every episode by briefly revisiting the events that were taking place at the time, and this episode is no different, so let's have a look at 2010. January changed the face of going on holiday, when full-body scanners were introduced at airports due to previous attempts to down aircraft. This is leisure in the 21st century. March brought with it the first British Airways strikes and the charging of Levi Belfield with the murder of Surrey teenager Millie Dowler. The 15th of April saw a cloud of volcanic ash from the eruption of That sheerly and utterly unpronounceable volcano in Iceland, which had news reporters almost grinning every time they got it right, so I'm not going to even try. But in any case, the eruption of that volcano in Iceland caused the closure of airspace over the United Kingdom and Northern and Western Europe. The six-day shutdown was the longest air traffic shutdown since the Second World War, and it's estimated that it led to a total loss for the airline industry of around £1 billion. May brought us a general election, 
and a hung parliament. Thus rose the question, would you rather be lib-labbed or condemned? As history would have it, the Liberals and the Conservatives formed a coalition, bringing us David Cameron and his Deputy Prime Minister, Nick Clegg. June brings an incredibly rare occasion to our shores, as taxi driver Derek Bird went on a killing spree in Cumbria, taking the lives of 12 and then his own. And then just a month later, Raoul Mort adds his name to those who have taken lives with firearms in this country. He kills one, wounds another, and blinds a policeman before a week-long manhunt sees him take his own life too. Towards the end of the year, the Ark Royal, Britain's flagship, returned to our shores to be decommissioned. A veteran of worldwide conflict, her time was no doubt thoroughly appreciated by many. And that is a snapshot of 2010. But to tell today's story, well, we only need to head around two weeks into the year, January the 16th. As we go through this podcast, we keep finding ourselves coming back to one of a few very busy main lines, and this probably isn't without reason or coincidence, because the main lines tend to have the high speeds and the high volume of traffic, so I suppose they tend to feature more prominently in accident reports. Sometimes, however, our tales will bring us away from those main arterial routes, and we'll find ourselves on the more parochial lines of the network. This time round, for example, we're not hanging out on the East Coast main line, the Great Western or the Great Eastern. This time, we're headed for the Welsh Marches line. The Welsh Marches is a line that connects the south of Wales to the northwest of England, via an area of land known as the Welsh Marshes. Note that one of those is marshes and the other one is marches, and I'm really not too sure why, and perhaps somebody on social media could enlighten me to that one. In any case, the line travels between Shrewsbury and Newport, and along the way it traverses through some beautiful English and Welsh countryside over bridges and rivers and through some delightful towns and villages. Some of these towns and villages are large and well-known, such as Hereford, Abergavenny, Pontypool, whereas others are small and known only to those with, well, a reason to know them, Pontrillas, Dinmore, Ludlow, Morton-on-Lug, the village of Morton on Lug is home to 920 people, a village inn, a church, and like so many of other villages up and down the country, it's a picturesque home to those who lived there, and relatively inconsequential to those who didn't now know of its existence. Three miles to the north of Hereford, Morton was also the former site of a railway station on the Marches Line, although that was closed in 1958, and all that now remained of the infrastructure was well, the line itself, a signal box and a level crossing, which, on the 16th of January 2010, would help to catapult the name of the village out of obscurity and into the national media. Last time we were together, we started by discussing the rail network in and out of Manchester, and although Morton and Lug is a cool hundred miles away, we find ourselves discussing Manchester once again, albeit very briefly. On the peaceful Saturday morning that was the 16th of January 2010, a train stood in the platforms of Manchester's Piccadilly station. A Class 175 diesel multiple unit operated by Arriva Trains Wales. Built a decade earlier by Alstom, the 175 comprised of around 200 seats, spread out between three carriages, and slung underneath them were three 450 brake horsepower Cummins engines, which could get the carriages up to their top speed of around 100 miles an hour. The train was one of Arriva Train's fleet, providing essential transport links to the people of Wales and the borders, and on the morning of the 16th, 175103 was ready to carry out that rule in full. At 08.30, the driver of the train took his signal and started to take his train out of Manchester Piccadilly under the head code of 1 Victor 75, headed out on a journey 
which would become far more dramatic than any of its previous ones. Victor 7-5 was a journey between Manchester and Milford Haven, on the Pembrokeshire coast of South Wales. The first leg of the journey took them as far as Crewe, where the driver alighted. He was replaced at this point by another driver, one based out of Cardiff. It was he who would take the train forward on the second leg of the journey. One Victor 7-5 proceeded south, continuing along, and as far as rail journeys go, this was not a short one. A cursory glance today at this line of route brings up a length of 6 hours and 26 minutes, with 24 intermediate stations. The full journey is only around 170 miles, but that's as the crow flies, with this train travelling via Hereford, Newport, Cardiff, Swansea, to name a few of the stops. The route was a little longer than that. Realistically, it was closer to 250. At 20 past 10, a little under two hours since the Arriva train service had departed Manchester, it arrived in the Herefordshire market town of Leominster. One minute later, the driver departed the station, with 32 passengers on board, as well as two other members of train crew. With a gentle application of power, one Victor 75 continued on down the Welsh Marches line, and into the area of Morton on Lug. down the line was the signal box at Morton on Lug. The box was responsible for both the section of line between Leominster and Hereford, as well as the level crossing located directly outside the box. Now with Absolute Block being the name of the game here, the signal at Morton was responsible for accepting trains from adjacent boxes when it was safe, and then offering them to the next box down the line to continue their journey. On the morning of the 16th, the man that was holding this responsibility was Adrian Mond. Employed by Network Rail as a signaller, he had 19 years of experience on the railway, and all of them had been gained at Morton on Lug signal box. To say that he was knowledgeable about the workings here would probably be an understatement. Leominster signal box offered Victor 75 to Mond just after 20 past 10, and Mond accepted the train. At 10.22, the train passed the section signal at Leominster, LE27. Now Victor 75 was Mond's responsibility. Continuing south, the train passed through the tunnel at Dinmore and was now approaching the signal box at Morton. And around this point, Maud also accepted another train from the south, one Whiskey 85. Victor 75 passed over Ox Pasture Farm number one user worked crossing at 10.27. Off to the side was a farmer waiting to cross the line with some sheep, and, well, not a rare sight in this neck of the woods to see farmers and sheep, and nothing to cause any concern. In fact, these farmers were probably well used to using the user worked crossing safely. Around a minute later, however, something very unusual happened. At 10.28, one Victor 7.5 was approaching signal Mike Lima 4.2. The signal aspect changed. The arm of the signal snapped back to horizontal. Danger. The driver of the train reacted immediately. He was less than 10 seconds away from the signal when it reverted in front of him. He applied the train's full-service brake to bring it to a stand. This meant that the brakes were as fully on as they could be, without hitting the emergency plunger. Seconds later, something even more terrifying was visible from the cab of the train. As one Victor 75 bore down on the signal box at Morton on Lug, the barriers of the adjacent crossing started to rise. The forward-facing CCTV of the train captured this at 10.28 and 50 seconds. Three seconds later the driver saw the first vehicles starting to move out into the crossing. This all happened really quickly by this point. Four seconds later, the barriers were vertical, and the cars were beyond the traffic lights on the road. At some point in this terrifying few seconds, the driver of the train applied the full emergency brakes and sounded the horn, but at this distance, and this speed, it made no difference. Despite the full force of the train's braking, it was still travelling at 58 miles an hour when it collided with two cars that had begun to cross the line. The first car, which had been waiting on the west side of the line before it started to cross, was a Vauxhall Astra. 
The right-hand side of the train collided with its front end heavily. It damaged it. Its bonnet ripped clear off to the side, and the whole car spun around, pointing down the line. The, the glancing nature of this blow meant that the occupants, a mother and her daughter, suffered only minor injuries. But the same could not be said for the other car. Waiting on the opposite side of the line had been a VW Touareg. They'd been marginally quicker off the line, I guess, when the barriers were raised, and that meant that by the time 1 Victor 75 arrived at the crossing, it didn't collide with the front bumper of the car, but rather the offside. The Volkswagen was pushed off the crossing and spun around, heavy damage being caused to the car. Well, what you would expect from a 58 mile an hour collision to the side by a train. Immediately following the accident, Adrian Maund contracted the emergency services. He called for all three to attend immediately with an emphasis on the ambulance. This was backed up by a simultaneously emergency call made from the driver of 1 Victor 75 over the National Rail Network Radio. This was the precursor to GSMR that we have nowadays. At 10.33, the signaller informed the Network Rail Office in Cardiff. He confirmed that he had called the emergency services and that all lines were blocked. Around the same time, the front-facing CCTV on 1 Victor 75 showed 1 Whiskey 85 arriving on the up main and stopping short of the accident site. Well, at least a second collision had been successfully avoided. Road-based ambulance crews were reported to be on site by 10.38, and the air ambulance arrived at 10.50. Before they arrived, however, others had attempted to provide first aid to the occupants of the Tuareg, and this even included the far less severely injured occupants of the Vauxhall Astra. Within the Tuareg could be found Mark and Jane Harding, a completely normal couple headed out on that most normal of Saturday tasks a shopping trip. Their day was turned upside down at 10.28, when the front end of a passenger train violently collided with them at Morton and Lug. Both were taken to hospital. Mark's injuries were significant, and he ended up having a three-day stay there. Jane's injuries, however, were so severe that she was airlifted to the hospital in Hereford. And while Mark survived to tell the tales of the day... His wife tragically succumbed to her injuries later on. This incident, which took place unexpectedly and violently in the Herefordshire countryside, brought with it a death toll of one. But with level crossings like this found all over the country, one was, and always will be, far too many. The investigation into the accident at Morton started almost immediately. Investigators from the RAIB, the Rail Accident Investigation Branch, descended on the scene. Every day, thousands of trains cross over hundreds of level crossings, up and down the country, at speeds ranging from 5 miles an hour to 125 miles an hour. While the danger to cars and their occupants is clear when we meet a train, we can't ignore the risk to trains themselves as well. We learned in episode one of this podcast what drastic effects can be found when cars and trains collide. Great Heck was the scene of a horrific train crash, triggered by a car ending up on the railway line. Lockington, 35 years ago, almost to the day when this episode was released, is the result of trains and a car trying to share a level crossing at the same time. All of this meant that it was crucial to understand what happened to avoid a repeat occurrence, and... As ever, in order to do this, investigators had a series of questions to answer to explain the death of Jane Harding and why the lives of every single person on that train had been risked. Firstly, the immediate cause. Why were cars and a train on the crossing at Morton and Lug at the same time? And once the immediate cause was identified, what had led to that occurrence taking place? Secondly, I think 
it was important to consider whether there had been any missed opportunities to prevent the accident. And knowing what those were, how could the accident be prevented from happening again? With their task laid out in front of them, they got to work. To understand why cars ended up on the crossing at Morton, we need to look at what process normally protected the line here. Morton on Lug is an MCB crossing, a manually controlled barrier crossing. This meant that the barriers at the crossing are, unsurprisingly, manually controlled by an adjacent signal box. In the past, crossings could be physical gates controlled by the Mark I human push-and-pull machine, or mechanical solutions controlled with a wheel in the signal box, as this was up until 1975. At this point, though, the gates at Morton were replaced with full-width barriers, which reached across both lanes of the road, and were controlled by a panel in the signal box. When trains were approaching Morton from the north, a certain process was to be followed. The signaller at Morton is offered a train from Leominster by means of a bell code. If you can accept the train, because the previous train has cleared the block, he sets his block instrument to line clear. When the train has passed the section signal at Leominster, the Leominster signaller then sends a bell code, train entering section. The signaller at Morton acknowledges this and sets his block instrument to train online. Now the next indication of the approaching train is when it occupies track circuit Bravo 3 after the Dinmore Tunnel. This sounds an audible alarm, which is known as an annunciator, which prompts the signaller to start the sequence of tasks that enable him to clear the signals for the approaching train. That is the point where the crossing comes into play. The sequence involves the signaller first checking that the crossing is actually clear of road traffic, and then he holds down the barrier's lower button on the control panel. Continuing to check as the barriers go down that the road is clear. The sequence that happens when he holds that button down, 6 seconds of amber lights to the road traffic, 8 seconds of flashing red lights to the road traffic, and then the barriers start to close. And by 21 seconds after he first started holding that button down, the barriers are down fully. Now we've covered interlocking before on the podcast, and it really is a great feature. It allows us to lock certain signals or equipment based on the settings of others. On the approach to Morton... There were two signals, Mike Lima 42, a stop signal on the immediate approach to the crossing, and Mike Lima 43, the home signal. They were both protected by Mike Lima 44, which is a distance signal. In absolute block signaling, the distance signal being clear tells the driver that all of the associated stop signals are clear as well. So Mike Lima 44, the distance signal, showing a clear aspect, would tell the driver that Mike Lima 43 and Mike Lima 42 were also clear. The distance signal is interlocked against the stop signals. It cannot be shown as a clear signal unless those other two signals are also clear as well. The levers are complexly woven around each other in a very mechanical, very fantastic Victorian computer kind of way, but it means that you cannot do that unless this condition is met. And to add to the safety at Morton, all of the signals were interlocked against the barriers of the level crossing. Only after the barriers were closed could levers in the signal box be moved to reset the signals approaching it to clear. This system meant that everything, well, had been working correctly. So for the driver of 1 Victor 75 to be approaching unclear signals, the barriers had to have been closed. So why didn't those signals correlate with, well, cars on the crossing? As part of the investigation, the state of the signal equipment was fully examined, including a review of how the crossing was looked after. And as you might expect, the level crossing and its equipment 
while they were subject to regular maintenance and inspection just as part of what they were. An examination of the maintenance records after the accident found there was no issues. All the examinations, all the inspections were done to date. No work was recorded as outstanding. All the equipment was fine, the interlocking was fine, and the controls were fine. So that ruled out the possibility of equipment failure leading to the collision. Both the signals and the crossing were working as planned. The biggest clue as to what happened here came from the account of the driver of the train. It was backed up by his train's forward-facing CCTV. As he approached Mike Lima 42, the signal that was protecting the crossing, it reverted to danger. This meant that the signal had been set correctly to clear, but then placed back to danger, and not in enough time to stop that train before it. In fact, if it had been done 8 seconds later, well, the train would already have passed the signal at the point it changed. This was not the only signal which changed from clear to danger as the train passed, but it was the only one that the driver of Victor 7... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Five would have seen. When the investigators viewed the forward-facing CTV of one Victor 7.5, they also reviewed the corresponding camera fitted to the rear cab. Shortly after the train passed the signal before Mike Lima 42, Mike Lima 43, that signal could be seen to move back to horizontal as well. In fact, the two almost seemed to move in the reverse of what clearing them to proceed would look like. And there is a reason for that. The signals at Morton had been manually placed back from clear to danger by Adrian Maund in the signal box. First, he moved the levers needed to set the distance, then Mike Lima 4-3, back to danger, just after 1 Victor 7-5 had passed it. Shortly after this, Adrian placed the lever back to move Mike Lima 4-2 back to danger, just 8 seconds before the train reached it. The fact that the signals were being replaced in this way definitely wasn't in line with the rules and regulations governing signalling, but the most terrifying thing is that not what he was doing, but why Maund was doing it. The interlocking at Morton meant that you needed to replace all the approaching signals to danger before pressing the button which allowed you to raise the barriers at the level crossing. This was Adrian Maund's intention. And this is what he did. With 1 Victor 7.5 breaking fully, but still approaching at over 60 miles an hour, Maund pressed the button which started the sequence to open the barriers. Over the next seven seconds, the barriers raised. The lights warning the traffic extinguished, and cars started to move out into the crossing. And we all know what happened next. All due to the intentional action to open the crossing. In fact, in the RAIB report, the immediate cause of the accident was recorded as this. The immediate cause of the accident was that the signaller raised the barriers at Morton on Lug Level Crossing when train 1 Victor 75 was closely approaching and protecting signal and was unable to stop before reaching the crossing. This permitted the waiting cars to move onto the railway and into the path of the train. So we have our immediate cause, but well, it's baffling as to why this happened. We certainly need to dig deeper to find out. Luckily, Maund did not beat around the bush, hide the fact that he intentionally raised the barriers or blame the equipment for failing. The simple reason he opened the barriers is because he mistakenly believed that he needed to raise them. He believed it was time to do so. 
At around 28 minutes past 10, Adrian mourned noticed that the level crossing was still closed, and that cars were waiting. For some reason, assuming that he'd left the barriers down in error and that 1 Victor 75 must have gone past by now, he... Well, he decided that he needed to open the crossing. He immediately began the task of replacing levers into the frame to allow this to take place, and this is the reason that the signals started to be put back to danger as the train was only just passing them. And it's what meant that the last one was thrown back in front of the train. He realised his error shortly after, around seven seconds or so after he commanded the barriers to open. His cue? He saw one Victor 75 approaching out of the corner of his eye. By this point, the barriers were open, and cars had started to move out of the crossing. Mond desperately tried to right his mistake at this point, and the only tool in his arsenal was to close the crossing again. He held down that barrier's close button, but this was next to useless. The sequence which I described earlier takes nearly 14 seconds for the barriers to start lowering. And the cars entering the crossing, well, they'd already driven past the lights, so they wouldn't have seen them turn on again. It should go without saying that a signaller has many duties. Physically pressing buttons and moving levers is one of them, but by far not the only one. A fairly crucial part is keeping track of where trains are within their section. Mond should not have lost track of where this train was, full stop. And to understand why he did it, we should look at what a normal transition through the area would look like. After accepting a train from Leominster, a signaller would have been alerted by the enunciator, which sounded a buzzer once the train occupied that specific track circuit. The signaller would then lower the barriers, releasing the interlocking on the signals. Those signals would then be cleared in order, and the signaller would watch the train traverse through the area on the track circuit displays above the lever frame. This diagrammatic map of the track in the area would have a lamp that lit every track section that the train was within, so you could physically watch the train go down from light to light to light. As the train proceeded through the section, the signaller could then replace each signal in the section to danger in turn as the train had passed it, and when the train finally crossed in front of the signal box and over the crossing, the signaller could start the process to reopen the barriers. Nice and easy. So what had caused the experienced signaller to mess this process up? Well, there are two fairly important words we need to be aware of, I suppose. Situational awareness. Signalers need to remain aware of what is going on in their area, and they need to do so whatever that situation might be around them, and it's clear that Morn lost his situational awareness on the day. And why was that? Well, let's go back and have a look at some of the duties of the signaller. This was not the only crossing that Morn was responsible for. Do you remember earlier in the episode when I talked about the farmer and his sheep stood next to the side of the line? probably thought it was weird that I gave it the full, very catchy name, Ox Pasture Farm Number 1 User Worked Crossing. Well, I did that because it's fairly significant to the story. In any case, a user worked crossing is a crossing which requires a phone call with the signaller to arrange crossing if you're taking any heavy machinery or animals or things like that. Other than that, if it's just you walking over, you can do the gate yourself, but there's a sign which instructs you to contact the signaller if you have any slow-moving equipment, heavy machinery, or animals. Very easy. Each crossing has a phone that you can pick up, and it will dial straight through to the signal box. And this is what the farmer had done. Shortly before 1 Victor 75 passed, he called, asking permission to cross his sheep over the line. Very simply, he was told that a train was approaching, and he needed to wait till after it was gone, and call back. Mond dealt with that call without incident and returned to his task, monitoring trains through the section. The investigators reviewed the work undertaken by Mond on the day and they split his workload into a number of tasks that he was undertaking. The first task, the primary one and probably the most important, was monitoring the process of 1 Victor 75 through the section. Now this process, this task, was interrupted. And what was that interruption? Well, it was the telephone again. The farmer at the user worked crossing had called back. Mond walked from the lever frame back to the telephone at the back of the signal box. 
and he stood there and tried to deal with the problem with the question. At this point, he has suspended the original task, because he's gone to focus on a new one. Practice shows us that at this point, when you are suspending one task to move on to a new one, it's important to retain information from the original task, to ensure that you can return to it afterwards properly. This particular task did, well, many things to distract Morn, however. First and foremost, these requests to cross the crossings with sheep were actually far and few between, and normally people would go over just with themselves or walkers and they would look after themselves. They wouldn't very often have to phone up to to have help or advice. Prior to the accident, the signaler's last recorded call from user work crossing was the 5th of September 2009, months earlier. Hardly an everyday occurrence. Secondly, this conversation wasn't quite as clear-cut as the first time. This time, Mons needed to consider the train headed northbound. Victor 75 was gone, it was past the crossing, but now he needed to consider how much time the farmer was likely to need versus how much time was available. This was the conversation that was taking place, and all of that conversation was related to another train, One Whiskey 85, the northbound service. That meant that One Whiskey 85 was now at the forefront of his mind. He was focused on a different train. When you add this into the fact that he was aware he needed to make sure that the correct paperwork was filled out and the right rules followed, it it all built up into a more complicated task. And this task was actually so rare to Morn that he said he was trying to think back to recent briefings and recall the rules involved. And this is all information and concentration that is building up on top of his existing task that he suspended. Throughout this conversation, Mond was consulting a computer in the signal box, particularly a program known as Trust, which stands for Train Running Under System Tops, and it's a, a cracking, incredibly powerful system, but it looks like it's running on MS-DOS and can be an absolute pain to get your head around if you're not used to using it. But in any case, this is a system which is used to monitor train progress and record delays. Using this program during the call placed his back to the levers, and more importantly, his back to the lamps on the track circuit indicator board. When the call ended, a minute after it began, it also ended the second task. Now, at this point, what Mon should have done is stop, pause, and reorient- reorientate himself to that first task. Recall the important information, pick up where you left off. This didn't happen. He didn't go back to actively monitoring the process of Victor 7-5. In fact, he did, well, almost the opposite. He came back to the opposite side of the box and reacted to the sight of the car still waiting at the barriers. Believing that the train had passed, or must have passed at this point, he opened the barrier. But why didn't he manage to pick up where he left off? Well, investigators highlighted a few possibilities. The signaller was away from his normal location when he went to the south side of the signal box after the second call from the user work crossing. Because of this, he was therefore deprived of his normal cues, the normal visual methods he used to track the process of trains through the area. And bear in mind, this is a man who has worked at this signal box, this one signal box on a double track section of line in Herefordshire, for 19 years. His processes, his, this is what I do, this is how I watch it, this, are probably quite well bedded in. And to remove himself from that situation and place his back to that could well have disorientated him. In addition, that second call from the crossing was conversational in nature. It was a relatively long call, around about a minute, which is a lot can happen in a minute. So it's credible that the signaler could actually have lost track of time, possibly making it seem as though, well, Victor 75 must have gone past in the meanwhile. There was also consideration that the focus on the computer and trust might have further distracted him from the fact that Victor 75 had not yet passed him. But whatever the reason, whichever factor had most heavily influenced his mistaken belief, it was clear that for a period of seconds, he did genuinely believe that one Victor 75 was past Morton on Luck and on its way towards Hereford. Human error. A fatal 
mistake, which was utterly unavoidable, but that changed people's lives forever. So now we must ask whether, well, was there anything that could have prevented the accident taking place? Interlocking prevented signals being cleared against the crossing when the barriers were open. Like we said, it's a fantastic feature. And it means that trains should not have come barreling down the line towards an open crossing in day-to-day operation. This is a good safety system. Interlocking is a good safety system, and it generally works well, except for one thing. This setup was defeatable under the right conditions. When Maund threw back the signals to danger, he satisfied those conditions to open the barriers of the crossing despite the fact that a train was on its way, seconds away from the roadway. And we need to ask ourselves then, whether or not there was a system available which could have plugged this gap. And so often, like we get on this podcast, frustratingly, there was. Approach locking. While the interlocking at Morton on Lug prevents the barriers being raised if the protecting signals are showing a clear indication, it does not stop the barriers being raised in error if a protecting signal is placed to danger when the driver of a train approaching it is unable to stop before the level crossing. Approach locking is used to achieve this. Once the signaller has set the route and cleared the signal at the entrance to that route, the signal interlocking prevents the opening of level crossings in the route ahead. In this condition, that route is said to be approach locked, and if the signal is then replaced to danger, this route stays locked unless the signaling system detects that an approaching train has passed the protecting signal, at which point the route ahead is locked by other means, or until a preset time period has elapsed that gives reasonable assurance that an approaching train has come to a stand at or before the signal, or until there is proof that there is no approaching train. This system would have prevented the actions of the signaller in this circumstance, and it could have saved the life of Jane Harding. So why wasn't it fitted? I assume it just wasn't available when the crossing was renewed in 1975, Oh no, frustratingly, it was. The system was developed in the 1960s, so it existed at the time. But the RAIB found no evidence of a regulatory requirement for British Rail to fit approach locking to the signals protecting the level crossing at Morton and Lug when the crossing was converted to manual barrier operation in 1975. There was no rule which said that these systems needed to be added. In fact, there was no industry requirement that even mandated a risk assessment to formally consider the safety benefit of approaching, fitting approach locking. But that wasn't the only opportunity to, to fit this, this safety system to the crossing. There was one more opportunity, one more possibility of introducing this technology that could save lives. The last significant signalling renewal at Morton on Lug was the replacement of the original barrier equipment, and that took place in 2009. When Network Rail was developing signalling designs against the initial remit for the renewal, well, there was discussion over the need to comply with current modern standards. In addition to other work, the initial remit called for new barrier control panels that meant a change to the signalling plan for the station. So as a result, there was an early proposal to fit approach locking here. However, it was eventually decided that the design should be developed without this. A risk assessment was to be done to support the decision, and a note was added to the draft signalling plan which would record this fact. However, at this time, Network Rail confirmed that it had become increasingly concerned about the cost of all the design being developed and had similar concerns about a number of other barrier renewal projects. It decided to look for an alternative, more cost-effective approach. In the midst of all of this, the draft signalling plan was put aside and the design work done against the initial remit was stopped 
that risk assessment, the one to support not fitting approach locking? Well, it wasn't carried out. Network Rail termed the alternative approach it developed the partial renewal. This enabled the old barrier units to be replaced with new ones without the need for new barrier control circuitry. And by adopting the partial renewal strategy, the standards did not require that formal consideration be given to fitting approach locking. No risk assessment was carried out to see whether or not the safety system should be added, nor did the industry mandate that one be undertaken. What it ultimately came down to is that decision to limit signalling renewal work at Morton and Lug to like-for-like equipment replacement as a strategy for improving value for money. As a direct consequence of that decision, there was no need to formally consider the benefits of an upgrade to bring the wider signalling system into compliance with current engineering standards. There was no need to consider, or to even risk assess the lack of, approach locking. Recommendations were certainly handed out from the report into Morton on Lug. First and foremost was this. Network Rail should identify level crossings operated by railway staff where a single human error could result in the road being opened to the railway when the train is approaching. At each such crossing, Network Rail should consider and where appropriate implement engineered safeguards. Safeguards for consideration should improve additional reminder appliances, alarms to warn of the approach of trains, approach locking, locking of the route, run-by controls, and the local interlocking of train detection and signalling systems with level crossing controls. There were another three recommendations as well that were all handed to Network Rail, that they need to improve their level crossing risk management process, that they needed to develop criteria for when older equipment should be brought in line with current standards, and that they needed to assess the risk that using trust and other systems could generate confusion and distraction when used by signalers in the commission of their duties. In the aftermath of the report, Network Rail identified 54 similar crossings, which were similarly at risk, and work was underway to rectify the problems. It was all really good, good advice, really good recommendations. It certainly wasn't too little, but it definitely was too late. In 2013, Mark Harding attended a trial at Birmingham Crown Court. The defendants were Adrian Mond and his former employer, Network Rail. Both of them had denied breaching health and safety regulations. But as it happened, the court and the jury disagreed. Both Network Rail and the signalman were found guilty of failing to ensure the safety of Jane Harding. On the 10th of April, following a two-week trial, both were sentenced. Maund was fined £1,750 and sentenced to 275 hours unpaid work. Network Rail was fined £450,000 for failing to ensure the safety of the level crossing. In addition to the fines, Network Rail was also ordered to pay another thirty three grand towards prosecution costs, while Maund was told to pay £750. One of the more crucial pieces of information in the trial was the assumed cost of the approach locking as it was described by the prosecution. They said that the equipment could have cost an extra £40,000, although Network Rail said the real cost of implementing it could have been much higher. £40,000 seems like nothing when it comes to saving a life. And when you consider that Network Rail was charged more than 10 times that as a fine, maybe the investment would have been worth it in the first place. A normal day can turn to disaster in next to no time. Mark Harding did nothing wrong on the 16th of January 2016. He stopped at a level crossing. He obeyed the instructions, and when the lights extinguished and the barriers raised, he did exactly what he was supposed to do. He started to cross the crossing. He broke no rules. His reward was serious injuries, a truly traumatic experience, and the loss of his beloved wife. We can never 
take safety for granted. We can never take day-to-day activities for granted because we just don't know what's going to happen next. But the very least that we can take away from every incident like this is that they all help to feed into a safer future for everybody else going forwards. you as ever for tuning into episode 23 so once again please like share and review come interact with us on social media twitter or facebook just search for signals to danger or daniel fox rail and if you do want to support the podcast get yourself over to signals to danger.com and either look at the support or the shop pages apart from all of that thank you once more and until next episode travel safe